Chapter 10 of Key Out of Time by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Key Out of Time, Chapter 10 Death at Kin Ad. The hour was close to dawn again, and a need for sleep waited Ross's eyelids, was a craving as strong as hunger. Still, restlessness had brought him on deck sent him to pacing, alert to this vessel and its crew. He had seen the ships of the Terran Bronze Age traders, small craft compared to those of his own time, depending upon oarsmen when the wind failed their sails, creeping along coasts rather than venturing too far into dangerous seas, sometimes even tying up at the shore each night. There had been other ships, leaner, hardier. Those had plunged into the unknown, touching lands beyond the sea-mists, sailed and oared by men plagued by the need to learn what lay beyond the horizon. And here was such a ship, taut, well-kept, larger than the Viking longboats Ross had watched on the tapes of the project's collection, yet most like those far-faring Terran craft. The prow curved up in a mighty bowsprit, where was the carved likeness of the sea-dragon Ross had fought in the Hawaika of his own time. The eyes of that monster flashed with a regular blink of light which the Terran did not understand. Was it a signal, or merely a device to threaten a possible enemy? There were sails, now furled as the ship bored on, answering to the steady throb of what could only be an engine. And his puzzlement held. A Viking longboat powered by motor? The mixture was incongruous. The crew were uniform as to face. All of them wore the flexible pearly armor, the skull-strip helmets, though there were individual differences in ornaments and the choice of weapons. The majority of the men did carry curve-pointed swords, though those were broader and heavier than those the Terran had seen ashore. But several had axes with sickle-shaped heads, whose points curved so far back that they nearly met to form a circle. Spaced at regular intervals on the deck were box-like objects fronting what resembled gun-ports, and smaller ones of the same type were on the raised deck at the stern and mounted in the prow, their muzzles, if the square fronts might be deemed muzzles, flanking the blinking dragon-head. Catapults of some type, Ross wondered. "'Ross!' His name was given the hiss Loketh used but it was not the wrecker youth who had joined him now at the stern of the ship. Oh, that was strong magic, that fighting knowledge of yours. Vistor rubbed his chest reminiscently. You have big magic, seaman, but then you serve the maid, do you not? Your swordsman has told us that even the great fish understand and obey her. Some fish, qualified Ross. Such fish as that, perhaps? Vister pointed to the curling wake of foam. Startled, Ross stared in that direction. Torgul's command was the centermost in a trio of ships, and those cruised in a line, leaving three trails of troubled wave behind them. Coming up now to port in the comparative calm between two wakes was a dark object. In the limited light Ross could be sure of nothing save that it trailed the ships, appeared to rest on or only lightly in the water and that its speed was less than that of the vessels it doggedly pursued. "'A fish, that?' Ross asked. "'Watch,' Vister ordered. 
but the Huyken sight must have been keener than the Terrans. Had there been a quick movement back there? Ross could not be sure. What happened? He turned to Vister for enlightenment. As a Salkar, it leaps now and then above the surface. But that is no Salkar. Unless, Ross, you who say you are from the sea have servants unlike any finned one we have drawn in by net or line before this day. The dolphins! Could Tino Rao or Tawa or both be in steady pursuit of the ships? But Carrara! Ross leaned against the rail, stared until his eyes began to water from the strain of trying to make out the nature of the black blot. No use. The distance was too great. He brought his fist down against the wood, trying to control his impatience. More than half of him wanted to burst into Torgal's quarters, demand that the captain bring the ship about to pick up or contact that trailer or trailers. "'Yours?' again Vister asked. Ross had tight rein on himself now. "'I do not know. It could well be.' It could well be also that the smart thing would be to encourage the rovers to believe that he had a force of sea-dwellers much larger than the four-time castaways. The leader of an army, or a navy, had more prestige in any truce discussion than a member of a lost scouting party. But the thought that the dolphins could be trailing held both promise and worry—promise of allies and worry over what had happened to Carrara. Had she, too, disappeared after Ash into the hold of the Foana? The day did not continue to lighten. Though there was no cottony mist as had enclosed them the night before, there was an odd muting of sea and sky, limiting vision. Shortly Ross was unable to sight the follower or followers. Even Vistor admitted he had lost visual contact. Had the blot been hopelessly outdistanced, or was it still dogging the wakes of the rover ships? Ross shared the morning meal with Captain Torgal, a round of leathery substance with a salty, meaty flavor, and a thick mixture of what might be native fruit, reduced to a tart paste. Once before he had tasted alien food when in the derelict spaceship it had meant eat or starve, and this was a like circumstance, since their emergency ration supplies had been lost in the net. But though he was apprehensive, no ill effects followed. Torgal had been uncommunicative earlier. Now he was looser of tongue, volunteering that they were almost to their port, the fairing of Kin Ad. The Terran had no idea how far he might question the Hoiken, yet the fuller his information the better. He discovered that Torgal appeared willing to accept Ross's statement that he was from a distant part of the sea and that local customs differed from those he knew. Living on and by the sea, the rovers were quick-witted, adaptive, with a highly flexible, if loose-knit organization of fleet clans. Each of these had control over certain islands, which served them as fairings, ports for refitting and anchorage between voyages, usually ruggedly wooded where the sea people could find the raw material for their ships. Colonies of clans took to the sea, not in the slim, swift cruisers, like the ship Ross was now on, but in larger, deeper vessels, providing living quarters and warehouses afloat. They lived by trade and raiding, spending only a portion of the year ashore to grow fast-sprouting crops on their fairing islands, 
and indulge in some manufacture of articles the inhabitants of the larger and more heavily populated islands were not able to duplicate. Their main article of commerce was, however, a sea-dwelling creature whose supple and well-tanned hide formed their defensive armor and served manifold other uses. This could only be hunted by men trained and fearless enough to brave more than one danger Torgal did not explain in detail. And a cargo of such skins brought enough in trade to keep a normal-sized fleet clan for a year. There was warfare among them. Rival clans tried to jump each other's hunting territories, raid fairings. But until the immediate past, Ross gathered, such encounters were relatively bloodless affairs, depending more upon craft and skillful planning to reduce the enemy to a position of disadvantage, in which he was forced to acknowledge defeat, rather than ruthless battle of no quarter. The shoreside wrecker-lords were always considered fair game, and there was no finesse in rover-raids upon them. Those were conducted with a cold-blooded determination to strike hard at a long-time foe. However, within the past year there had been several raids on fairings with the same bloodbath result of a foray on a wrecker-port. And since all the fleet clans denied the sneak-and-strike, kill-and-destroy tactics which had finished those rover holdings, the seafarers were divided in their opinion as to whether the murderous raids were the work of wreckers suddenly acting out of character and taking to the sea to bring war back to their enemies, or whether there was a rogue fleet moving against their own kind for some purpose no rover could yet guess. "'And you believe?' Ross asked as Torgal finished his resume of the new dangers besetting his people. Torgal's hand, its long slender fingers spidery to Terran eyes, rubbed back and forth across his chin before he answered. "'It is very hard for one who has fought them long to believe that suddenly those shore-rats are entrusting themselves to the waves, venturing out to stir us with their swords. One does not descend into the depths to kick a salkar in the rump, not if one still has his wits safely encased under his skull-braid. As for a rogue fleet, what would turn brother against brother to the extent of slaying children and women? Raiding for a wife, yes. That is common among our youth, and there have been killings over such matters. But not the killing of a woman, never of a child. We are a people who have never as many women as there are men who wish to bring them into the home cabin, and no clan has as many children as they hope the shades will send them. Then who? When Torgal did not answer at once, Ross glanced at the captain, and what the Terran thought he saw showing for an instant in the other's eyes was a revelation of danger. So much so that he blurted out, "'You think that I, we? You have named yourself of the sea, stranger, and you have magic which is not ours. Tell me this in truth. Could you not have killed Vistor easily with those two blows if you had wished it?' Ross took the bold course. Yes, but I did not. My people kill no more wantonly than yours. The coast rats I know, and the Fawana, as well as any man may know their kind and ways, and my people, but you I do not know, sea stranger. And I say to you, as I have said before, make me regret that I suffered you to claim battle rights, and I shall speedily correct that mistake. Captain! 
That cry had come from the cabin door behind Ross. Torgal was on his feet with the swift movements of a man called many times in the past for an instant response to emergency. The Terran was close on the rover's heels as they reached the deck. A cluster of crewmen gathered on the port side near the narrow bow. That odd misty quality this day held provided a murk hard to pierce, but the men were gesturing at a low-riding object rolling with the waves. That was near enough for even Ross to be able to distinguish a small boat akin to the one in which he, Carrara, and Loketh had dared the sea-gate of the Fawana. Torgal took up a great curved shell hanging by a thong on the mainmast. Setting its narrow end to his lips, he blew. A weird booming note, like the coughing of a sea-monster, carried over the waves. But there was no answer from the drifting boat, no sign it carried any passengers. Ho! 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 Torgal's signal was re-echoed by shell calls from the other two cruisers. Heave to! the captain ordered. Wakti, Zimon, Joanna, out and bring that in! Three of the crew leapt to the railing, poised there for a moment, and then dived almost as one into the water. A rope end was thrown, caught by one of them. And then they swam with powerful strokes toward the drifting boat. Once the rope was made fast, the small craft was drawn toward Torgal's command, the crewmen swimming beside it. Ross longed to know the reason for the tense expectancy of the men around him. It was apparent the skiff had some ominous meaning for them. Ross caught a glimpse of a body huddled within the craft. Under Torgal's orders a sling was dropped to rise weighted with a passenger. The Terran was shouldered back from the rail as the limp body was hurried into the captain's cabin. Several crewmen slid down to make an examination of the boat itself. Their heads came up, their eyes searched along the rail and centered on Ross. The hostility was so open that Terran braced himself to meet those cold stares as he would a rush from a challenger. A slight sound behind sent Ross leaping to the right, wanting to get his back against solid protection. Loketh came up, his limp making him awkward, so that he clutched at the rail for support. In his other hand was one of the hooked swords, bared and ready. "'Get the murderers!' someone in the back line of the massing crew yipped that. Ross drew his diver's knife. Shaken at this sudden change in the crew's attitude, he was warily on the defensive. Loketh was beside him now, and the Wyken nodded to the sea. "'Better go there,' he cried. "'Over, before they try to gut you!' "'Kill!' the word shrilled into a roar from the rovers. They started up the deck toward Ross and Loketh. Then someone leapt between, and Vister fronted his own comrades. "'Stand away!' One of the others ran forward, thrusting at the tall rover with a stiffened, outheld arm to fend him out of their path. Vister rolled a shoulder, sending the fellow shunting away. He went down while two more, unable to halt, thudded on him. Vister stamped on an outstretched hand and sent a sword spinning. "'What goes here?' Torgal's demand was loud enough to be heard. It stopped a few of the crew, and two more went down as the captain struck out with his fists. Then he was facing Ross, and the chill in his eyes was the threat the others had voiced. "'I told you, sea stranger, that if I found you were a danger to me or mine, you would meet the justice of Futka.' "'You did,' Ross returned. "'And in what way am I now a danger, Captain?' 
Kin Ad has been taken by those who are not wreckers, not rovers, not those who serve the Fawana, but strangers out of the sea." Ross could only stare back, confused, and then the full force of his danger struck home. Who those raiding sea-strangers could be, he had no idea, but that he was now condemned out of his own mouth was true, and he realized that these men were not going to listen to any argument from him in their present state of mind. The growl of the crew was that of a hungry animal. Ross saw the wisdom in Loketh's choice. Far better chance the open sea than the mob before them. But his time for choice had passed. Out of nowhere whirled a lacy, gray-white net, slapping him back against a bulkhead to glue him there. Ross tried to twist loose, got his head around in time to see Loketh scramble to the top of the rail, turn as if to launch himself at the men speeding for the now helpless Terran. But the Hawaiian's crippled leg failed him, and he toppled back overside. "'No!' again Torgal's shout halted the crew. "'He shall take the black curse with him when he goes to meet the shadow, and only one can speak that curse. Bring him!' Helpless, reeling under their blows, Dragged along, Ross was thrown into the captain's cabin, confronted by a figure braced up by coverings and cushions in Torgal's own chair. A woman, her face a drawn death's head of skin pulled tight upon bone, yet a fiery inner strength holding her mind above the suffering of her body, looked at the Terran with narrowed eyes. She nursed a bandaged arm against her, and now and then her mouth quivered as if she could not altogether control some emotion or physical pain. "'Yours is the cursing, Lady Jazia. Make it heavy to bear for him, as his kind has laid the burden of pain and remembering on all of us.' She brought her good hand up to her mouth, wiping its back across her lips as if to temper their quiver. And all the time her eyes held upon Ross. "'Why do you bring me this man?' Her voice was strained, high. He is not of those who brought the shadow to Kin Ad. What? Torgal began, and then schooled his voice to a more normal tone. Those were from the sea? He was gentle in his questioning. They came out of the sea, using weapons against which we had no defense? She nodded. Yes, they made very sure that only the dead remained but I had gone to the shrine of Futka, since it was my day of duty, and Futka's power threw its shade over me. So I did not die, but I saw, yes, I saw." "'Not those like me?' Ross dared to speak to her directly. "'No, not those like you. There were few, only so many,' she spread out her five fingers. "'And—' They were all of one, like as if born in one birth. They had no hair on their heads, and their bodies were of this hue." She plucked at one of the coverings they had heaped around her. It was a lavender-blue mixture. Ross sucked in his breath, and Torgal was fast to pounce upon the understanding he read in the Terran's face. "'Not your kind, but still you know them.' "'I know them,' Ross agreed. "'They are the enemy.' The Baldies from the ancient spaceships, that wholly alien race with whom he had once fought a desperate encounter on the edge of an unnamed sea in the far past of his own world. The galactic voyagers were here, 
and in active, if secret, conflict with the natives. End of chapter 10